Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons why advertisers love Smart People Podcasts is because they know we have amazing fans. So thank you, thank you, thank you, amazing fans for helping support Smart People Podcast. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about you. Just go to podsurvey.com slash smart. The survey only takes five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. We want to make sure that we have the most relevant ads on this podcast, so please take the time to fill out this survey. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash smart, podsurvey.com slash S-M-A-R-T. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so we can keep the show free. And now, on to this week's episode. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Hey guys, I don't know if you happen to see it or listen to it, but Smart People Podcast was recently featured on a podcast called Pod on Pod, where they review podcasts. 
Uh, overall, they liked the show, which was great to hear. But one thing that I want to clear up is they were always, they, they kept talking about, I don't know who's talking most of the time. Is it John or Chris? It's just two white guys. First of all, John's Cuban, but nah, he's pretty white. But also, for the record, this is Chris, and I do almost every interview. I've done almost every interview for the past at least 50, I would say. Um, and that is no knock on John. He does plenty of work. All the production, posting, editing, a lot of stuff. But he simply has a very full-time job that requires him to be at the office. So he can't be on the interviews where I have about three jobs, this being one of them, but they're more flexible and I'm at home working from home a lot. So just for the record, if you hear an interview past probably 150 as a guess, it's me, Chris. All right. Now that we've cleared that up, I have a question for you. Were you raised by a stay at home mom? That question probably evokes some serious emotion. If you were, you think, yes, and I'm proud of it. If you weren't, you think, no, and I'm proud of it, <laughs> okay? The question becomes, is it better or worse to be raised by a stay-at-home mom? Or on the flip side, is it better or worse to have a mom who works? I personally was raised by a stay-at-home mom. Once I went to school, she volunteered and, and worked at the school, she worked prior to and after my kind of early childhood years, but I really relish those memories. I love my mom. She's one of the greatest people on the planet. And now I've realized now that I have a very young two-month-old, I kind of want my wife to, to be a stay-at-home mom. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury. We're not rich yet. <laughs> um, so this is a really interesting question for me. How does that affect children? Well, this week on the podcast, we attempt to answer that question. We are interviewing Professor Kathleen McGinn. Kathleen is one of the leading researchers on one of the new studies out of Harvard Business School's Gender Initiative. It's called the Working Mother Study, and it was authored by Harvard Business School professor Kathleen McGinn, our guest, Harvard Business School researcher Myra Ruiz Castro, and Elizabeth Longlingo of Mount Holyoke College. Never heard of that one. I'm not going to give away the answer. I'm going to let you listen to the interview. Going to get into the interview here. Thanks for the reviews, guys. Um, thanks for heading over to iTunes. Reach out to us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at smartpeoplepod. We really love that. We love seeing you guys on Twitter. And hopefully respond when we can. Um, but most importantly, tell a friend. We're always trying to grow this, and we appreciate it. Hope you enjoy this episode, Dr. Kathleen McGinn, and answering the question, stay-at-home moms, good or bad? All right, Kathleen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about a subject that I am not really educated on in terms of the formal education, but I think many of us are educated on in just the way we grow up. And we're going to be talking about uh, the gender initiative and the roles of man and woman in the home and in the workplace. So I'm excited for that. And thank you again for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Chris. I'm looking forward to talking with you and all your listeners about 
employed moms. Yeah, absolutely. And as we were kind of discussing prior to me hitting the record button, I definitely, you know, I grew up with a stay-at-home mom, and so I, I have some deep-rooted thoughts on the subject, and we will get to that. But prior to, as I was reading your bio, you're extremely accomplished. You've taught and got your doctorate from some of the best schools in the country. And so I, I just wanted to get a little bit of your background. You know, were you always driven as a student? Were you naturally curious? Uh, what made you go into this kind of field and, and studying gender differences and roles? Yeah, great question. So I came out of my undergrad and was already managing the place that I'd been working when I was a student. So I worked full-time to put myself through college and just started um, working in management and then went to get my MBA part-time while I was continuing to work. Um, Became the director of training in the corporation I was working with and then moved into the public sector and became the director of training in the public sector in Oregon and then um, the director of labor relations. And I loved the work, but I constantly felt like I needed, I needed answers to really critical questions and the answers weren't there. And I had had a fantastic professor in my MBA program. He was a professor of accounting and he had told me that there's no life better than being a professor Um, You get to study what you want and work with amazing students all the time. My father had been a professor as well. He um, was um, a professor of education and had been the dean of the School of Ed in Seattle. And when my professor told me this, I thought, well, why haven't I been thinking about that? So I really started thinking about becoming a professor, and it seemed to fit completely with my need to ask and answer questions. So I went to went back to get my PhD after sort of having had a couple other careers and fell in love with research. When I got my PhD or when I went to get my PhD, I thought what I was going to be doing was teaching college. I love to teach. Um, I thought that would be my career. And it turned out it was, it was like um, catching a bug. I started doing research um, when I started at Northwestern. And the more research I did, the more I wanted to do it. The more questions I asked, the more I wanted to study them. So it it just feeds me. I have to then dive in further because I have thought about, I mean, I really envision being a couple of years down the line and being that smart professor up front, you know, and, and then behind the scenes getting to do a lot of research and reading because... That's what I do on the podcast. I just try to feed my curious mind and in the process feed others. So I love the idea or at least the ideal of um, being a professor, making that transition from corporate America and then getting an MBA and a PhD while working and having a family. I have so many concerns about that. I mean, along the way, were you like, did you ever think I don't have time? I don't have money. I don't want to put in all the effort that goes into a PhD, especially from a program such as Northwestern. I didn't. It, it, it was always fun for me. So I do remember my brother. I'm one of five kids, and my brother was doing great. He was younger than I was, and you know he was making a bunch of money, and you know I hadn't spent all these years in school, and I was still in school. So when I went back to get my PhD, he was like, "What are you doing, Kath?" You know, you could you could make plenty of money without this. And I said, I, I just really enjoy it. And 
my husband and I, so my husband's also an academic, we were talking about it the other night and it can, so you can look at the degrees that we have and say, oh my heavens, that must have been a whole lot of sacrifice and hard work. Um, but when you like research, it's just fun. Um, of course, it's a lot of work too. There's lots of hours, but it really wanting, just like your job, wanting to know the answers to questions and having found a way like you found um, through smart people and like I and many others have found through um, academic research, having a way to dig into and get information about the things you're really curious about is really honestly most of the time more fun than it is a sacrifice. Right. I've just always looked at the, you know, and I guess after leaving undergrad, the thought of really testing and, and, and applying and all the things that go into that, that seems more daunting than the actual work once you're there. You got an MBA prior to your PhD and did both while working? So I got my MBA while I was working, my undergrad and my MBA while I was working pretty much full time. Wow. My PhD, so the first semester I didn't work and then I started teaching. So... Mm. You know, while I was getting my PhD, I was teaching um, MBA classes at Northwestern. So I suppose that was working, <laughs> but it very much linked in with the research that I was doing. Um, and it was an environment in which being able to teach was sort of a, it was sort of an honor as a doctoral student to be able to teach. And, and I enjoyed that. It's a, it's a very nice balance. Sure. Doing research can be pretty isolating. Mm-hmm. In the sense of, you know, you're sitting with your data at your computer and you're writing and teaching, of course, is very social um, and very interactive. So the combination of the two was great. So I suppose I worked. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was like working as an academic. Well, that is the that is the dream when it when it doesn't <laughs> feel like work, but it is work and you're getting paid for it. That is the dream. Yeah. So uh, your has your area of study always been kind of gender at work and in negotiations? It hasn't. So it has always been negotiations. So I came back because I had worked in labor relations prior to getting my PhD. What I really wanted to understand was conflict and the resolution of conflict. So that's what I studied um, from the very beginning um, with my PhD. So I have always studied negotiations, but I didn't study gender at all. In fact, I didn't even think about gender at all. I do remember a few things. I was one of um, five essentially young executives for this um, corporation and when I was the director of training. And I remember it was Secretary's Day, which there used to um, be Secretary's Day. And, and I remember the CEO gave out these nice pens to all the secretaries and gave one to me because I was the only female that wasn't the secretary. And I, just, and I asked him, like, why are you giving me this? And he said, well, it's Secretary's Day. You're a woman. And, and I remember thinking that was strange. But other than very small things like that, I never thought about gender at all. Um, I have worked with doctoral students throughout my career as a professor. And I had a doctor, doctoral student, Hannah Riley Bowles, who's a professor at the Kennedy School now at Harvard. And she wanted to study gender and negotiations. And so I was her advisor. And so I worked on it with her. Uh, but she was really driving those questions. And as we worked together, and we worked with Linda Babcock, who also writes on gender. Um, she wrote the book, Women Don't Ask. Um, as we worked on this, it became clearer and clearer to all of us that 
gender was so situationally determined that to study gender inside a negotiation is kind of to miss the point. And so I moved away from negotiation studies. Some of my work still has negotiations in it. Um, but for the most part, I moved away from studying negotiations per se to studying gender and work more broadly. Getting into gender at work, it's really, I don't want to say foreign to me, <laughs> but I guess just unrealized. You know, the the, the struggle perhaps of uh, minorities or females, because as a young, white, middle-class guy, you know, I guess it's just status quo, right? And then having recently, within the past 10 years, been thrust into the you know corporate environment, uh, a lot has changed. And there wasn't really, in, at least in my opinion, a noticeable difference. Although I, I know that they, we still talk about the, the gap in pay and, and things like that. What have you seen in your time since you you know, had your, your normal job, now you're in academia. What has the change been like thus far? And where do we still really lack and need to kind of continue moving forward on? So, so let me answer, um, I, I think you're asking two questions. Mm-hmm. One is, what does gender mean for a white middle-class guy? Yeah. Which is a really important question. And the other is, how have understandings of gender changed over the last, say, 20, 30 years? So let me answer the first one um, pretty quickly, and then I'll spend some more time on the second. So your experience is very, very common. Um, So we have a study, we're working with this um, large financial institution, and we interviewed all of their, well, the majority of their high potential vice presidents, directors, and managing directors. And we were, it's a matched sample of men and women, and we were interested in people's identity as leaders. And so when you ask a woman to tell you about herself as a leader, gender often comes up. When you ask a man to talk about himself as a leader, gender never comes up. And if you go further and ask the question, do you think of yourself as a leader who happens to be a man or woman, or do you think of yourself as a woman leader or a man leader? For men, the question, like, do you think of yourself as a man leader? Like, that's an absurd question. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and none of them, like, they can't make sense out of that question. It's like, what are you asking me exactly? And, and to a person, they all say, I'm a leader who happens to be male. And, and with women, it's much more split. Some people, some women say, I'm a woman who happens, I'm a leader who happens to be a woman, and other people say, I'm a woman leader. Um, but the question is completely obvious to women. So your experience is um, very common that people who are in the majority don't think of the dimension on which they're in the majority. Um, and, and that makes it harder to understand the experience of those who aren't in the majority. And so it's great when organizations um, have open conversations about things that not everybody experiences, because then people like you can understand what it's like to be female or to be an African-American or to be a Latino, not personally, but have some clue about it. Sure. And that discussion is really, really important. Remember when we first started um, 
discussing gender more openly um, here at HBS, I remember one of my male colleagues, and this was many, many years ago, came up to me one day and said, wow, you work in a completely different place than I do. And I said, yeah, I do. Hmm. So, so let me talk a little bit about the second question, which is how have understandings of gender in organizations changed over the last few decades? And so I have a study with um, Lakshmi Ramarajan, who's a colleague here at Harvard, and with Debbie Kolb, who's uh, emeritus professor at Simmons. And we looked at seven top media outlets like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune. And we pulled out over the since 1990, we pulled out every article that mentioned both woman and gender, we searched for either word, and work. And when you look at that set of articles over 20-some years, what you see is the way it's been talked about over that period has changed a lot. So when you look in the 90s, especially the early 90s, when there are articles in the paper about gender and work or women and work, It's primarily about bias, about stereotypes, about sexual harassment. Um, So this was the time of the Anita Hill hearings and things. Um, And that understanding of gender at work as a problem, a political and organizational problem, really dominated the discussion at that point in time. And, And when you think about gender from that perspective, it's really a political problem that needs to be solved. Um, And so there were lots of attempts at national levels and at more local organizational levels to deal with bias and stereotype. As, As you go into the late 90s, the discussion, partially because unemployment um, was really dropping, and there was this war for talent. So McKinsey framed the phrase the term war for talent. And the, what organizations really wanted was to get to make sure they had the very, very best people. People were talent. Knowledge organizations needed the very best people. That was the way organizations were going to differentiate themselves. And you couldn't have an organization that was going to somehow filter out half of the population. Um, because by 1990, women were about 50% of the graduating classes. They're now higher than 50% of the graduating classes um, in most of the colleges in the U.S. And so the, the discussion in the media and in organizations changed to move away from bias and stereotype with the understanding that we've kind of, kind of moved past that and started to focus more on the discussion of underrepresentation. We really need more women And specifically, we need more women at higher levels in organizations so that we're an attractive place to pull the very best talent in the world. All right. Time for a break for our sponsor this week, Animoto. What's the best way to tell a story? What's the best way to get people to hear about your product or to show off your kids on the Internet or to preserve your family memories? It's video. Guys, the world loves video. There are 4 billion video views a day on YouTube. How many of those are thanks to you? Well, this week, I'm here to tell you about Animoto, literally the easiest way to make a professional, awesome video. Animoto has changed 
the way we make video and it wants you to give their video maker a try and see for yourself how easy it is. Animoto is drag and drop. In minutes, you can create something that would have taken you a very long time to do on your own. As I mentioned in a previous episode, my wife, who's a kindergarten teacher, recently made a video for her kindergarten class. And in the past, she's used some junky software that wasn't that good. This time, she tried Animoto, thanks to my recommendation, and it was awesome. It looked great. The parents loved it. It took her minutes to learn the entire platform. And the best thing is, we're going to let you try it for free. Head over to Animoto.com. That's A-N-I-M-O-T-O.com slash smart people. Okay? Animoto.com slash smart people. You're going to be able to use it for free for 14 days. And then when you go to purchase an annual subscription, you get 15% off. Don't struggle making videos the hard way. Use Animoto, you will be really impressed, and it's free for the first 14 days. Give it a shot. Animoto.com slash smart people. All right, let's get back to the show. Was sort of the idea was sort of if you build it, they will come. You know, if we have these organizations that are attractive to women, then women will be attracted. And it was a somewhat circular reasoning. But organizations started focusing on things like quotas, started really focusing on holding managers responsible for the diversity of their, of their teams and of their groups. And, and this really moved away from a political question of gender and moved to having the onus of responsibility lying within the organization. Organizations needed to do something to make themselves more attractive. Hmm. As you move into um, sort of past 2002, 2003, a third way of talking about gender and work sort of barged onto the scene. And that was this discussion of work-family conflict or work-family balance or work and home. And this was all around the idea that individuals must make choices about where to put their time and energy and what was interesting about this, and this, this still dominates, although it's starting to change some, what's interesting about this is that, by and large, it moves the discussion away from organizations as responsible for making sure that there are places where everybody can thrive, whether they're male or female or whatever race or religion they happen to be, um, to having the responsibility sit in, on the shoulders of the individual, you know, if I want to have a good career, I have to figure out how to deal with this work-family conflict. And, and the discussion just recently is starting to turn a little bit more toward organizations as needing to be places where people can live part of their lives, but that 24-7 organizations, which has become more and more common with you know, cell phones and all of those things. Um, 24-7 organizations are not functional places for individuals, nor are they necessarily good for organizations. So my colleagues Leslie Perlow and Robin Ely, Aaron Reed do research on the, the sort of the fiction behind work-family choice and how that's real, really driven by 24-7 workplace. So I think that sort of gives you the path of gender and work. Yeah, no, that was a great, you know, I felt like I was walking through a timeline and it was, it was really good. And especially as, as many of the listeners know, man, as you were talking, 
I have a, a brand new baby and my wife is a kindergarten teacher and she's off for summer, but we're starting to think about, okay, when she goes back to work and you have a four month old child, you know, it's really just a new complex problem. And so I bring a lot of my own issues to the table, but before we kind of talk about that, or maybe it's in the same vein, I wanted to get back to and maybe clarify the point you made about the 24 seven kind of work cycle and, and what your colleagues are doing. Could you talk a little bit more about what they're finding and, and where we're going and where organizations need to move to? Because I don't think I completely understood the basis uh, for that. Yeah. So so Leslie Perlow has a study that she's been working with um, one of the major consulting firms for many years, where what she's done is she's worked with groups to identify what are ways to protect private time and what's necessary time for the organization and what's um, face time alone. And so they've created a set of interventions that are specific to the kind of work consultants do, but nonetheless give you an idea, sort of a flavor for the way other organizations could think of these things. So consulting firms often have um, the consultants traveling essentially four nights a week, five days a week. And one of the things that um, various pieces of research have shown is that both the organization that's hiring the consultants and the consultants are better off if they're not on site five full days a week. The organizations really need time to do what they're doing and don't need the consultants in their face all the time. And the consultants need time to really think through what they're finding rather than constantly be interfacing with the client. And so one of the real simple things interventions that organizations like consulting firms have put into place is that we maximize the number of days that you have to be on the road a week. Now, people that don't travel, like you and me, think only having to be on the road two nights a week is a good deal. Um, but for people who are choosing to be consultants, that that is a much better life. Another example of it is the team works out who's going to have essentially what evenings free so there's this expectation that they're always going to be available um, if an email comes in or if a Skype call comes in. And instead of the whole team always being available all the time, which creates unnecessary work um, and gives no one any freedom, basically they say, okay, Chris, you have Wednesday. And everybody knows that you are not available Wednesday after 5 period, we can't call you, we can't talk to you, period, you're not there. And all of us know that and we're going to cover for you. And Kathleen, you have Thursday. And Chris is going to be available on Thursday, but you don't have to be there. Much along the lines as doctors have done for a long time, when you're an on-call doctor, not every night of the week, but some nights of the week. So this was a pretty major intervention for consultants. So these are the types of things. And again, they have to be specific to the type of work that your organization does, but there are questions that organizations are starting to ask that we really weren't asking five years ago. I mean, the assumption was everybody had to be available and everybody had to be on the road, period, if you wanted to do this career. Mm, I see. Yeah. And and what about the fact that given the increases in housing and the, the non-existent increases in wages are causing this problem of both parents need to be working add on top of that the increasing cost of childcare, and we're creating what seems to be our own problem of not having the resources available to 
perhaps properly raise our children. Has, have you seen any research or you or your colleagues do any research on that? Yeah, so, so um, because our study and the study of employed moms is across 24 countries, we do see that um, women are much more likely to be employed when there is better child care available. So I think it goes somewhat counter to what you're suggesting. In the U.S., there is not very much really good child care available, and what is really good child care that's available is really expensive. And so people who choose to go to work, and, and lots of people work because they want to, and lots of people work because they have to, but whether you're, whether you're trying to go to work because you want to or have to, if the cost of having your kids in child care is more than you make or more than you take home, it's a losing enterprise. And that's the situation with lots of families in the U.S., that both parents would actually like to have some time in the workplace, but they have to figure out some way that somebody's always at home because they can't afford the quality care that's available widely in a lot of countries and available to high-income people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is something I I just saw. I want to say it was on the Daily Show that the U.S. and Papua New Guinea are the only. I think that's what it was. The only countries in the world that don't offer paid time off to new mothers. I don't know if that's true. I think I saw it, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're the only countries in the world. But in terms of developed countries, um, we are certainly an outlier um, in terms of both maternal or maternity and paternity leave. Yeah. So a really interesting article um, came out in the New York Times um, a couple weeks ago that looked at the extent to which um, paternity leave is really necessary if what we want to do um, is create greater equity within households. So lots of dads would like to spend more time with their kids, but when what happens is the woman has a child and she automatically gets whatever it is the organization gives, and some organizations have it paid and um, some don't, she automatically takes the time off. And by the end of 6, 12, 18 weeks, whatever time it is she takes off, she has become the primary caretaker, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard for the father to take on an equal role with his kids. And lots of dads would like to have that equal role, but organizations need to step up and it would be fantastic if the government stepped up, um, but well, it's not clear that that's going to happen likely in the U.S. in any uh, any time soon. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to your bread and butter. It's this recent study that you guys did, and it's it's recently been published. Basically, that states having a working mother is unlikely to harm kids economically and socially as adults. That's, I believe, in a nutshell, the findings, and I definitely want to turn it over to you for more of an explanation on that. But again, I I just have to say that, you know, having been raised by a stay-at-home mom, it makes you wonder, like, I was thinking, how can that be? Or not even how can it be, but what about the emotional intelligence of these children as opposed to just the fact that they make more money as they become adults? So I just have so many thoughts and questions on it, but I'd like you to kind of highlight what you think is the most important findings surrounding this study. Yeah. So let me start first with um, this question of like, are they happier people? So there has been research 
over the last couple decades that's looked at the effects of maternal employment, employed moms, on young kids, both achievement and behavior. Um, you know, they don't measure kids' happiness, but they do say, you know, is this kid doing well in terms of with friends and things like that? And across studies, academics have this approach that they do. It's called meta-analysis, where somebody who's a really, really good statistician takes 50 studies, say, that have looked at the question of maternal employment and children's behavior um, and children's academic achievement and puts all those studies together and tries to control for as much as they can and says, overall, what do these studies say? And overall, even when you're looking at young kids, while the kids are still at, well, um, the kids are basically in grade school, there is a slight positive effect for maternal employment on on children's achievement in school and on their behavior in school. This is strongest for lower income families. So um, you can think about the challenges that lower income families have if the mom stays home full time. They're dealing with less money, fewer resources, more stress, and many lower income families are, are single parent families. And so the mother really needs to go to work. And what these studies find is that um, mothers who are able to attain and keep employment and find their, their kids actually do better. As you go up the income ladder, that effect goes away. So if, you're, if you are well off, um, there's no effect on your kids whether you go to work or not. Oh, I did not recognize that. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Okay, are you sitting down? I'm going to tell you about Aspiration, a different kind of financial firm. Their idea is pretty simple. Take everything you don't like about investing and do the opposite. Traditional Wall Street firms work for mostly millionaires. At Aspiration, their investment strategies are built for the middle class. Signing up takes as little as $500 and five minutes of your time. At Aspiration, you choose the fee you pay them, even if that's zero. They don't make a cent other than what you decide they deserve. That means you know they're committed to working for you. And Aspiration is one of the most charitable financial firms in America. They donate 10 cents of every dollar their company makes to microloans for struggling Americans working to build a better life. Fox Business News says Aspiration is shaking things up for Wall Street. And I think we can all agree that industry needs some shaking up. Check them out and sign up at aspiration.com slash smart people. Aspiration's motto is do well and do good. And isn't it time a financial firm was built on helping us do a little more of both? Again, please head over to aspiration.com slash smart people. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objective, generate profits, or avoid losses. Investing involves risk of loss and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. Before investing, consider your investment objectives. And now back to the show. Yeah, so that's not from my finding. That's, that's from you know, a couple decades of research on young kids' achievement okay. and, and, again, behavior. The, the other thing that... We have found, so while, while most of the press has talked about the effect on women's employment and the effect on men's contributions to home, 
we did look at a measure of overall happiness. So our data come from what's called the International Social Surveys Program, which is an international consortium that collects in-person interview survey data across 34 countries every year. Um, and, and each year they choose a different addendum that is about something that they find important. And in 2002 and in 2012, they had an addendum on gender attitudes and things like whether your mother worked, et cetera. So those are the data that we use. One of the questions that was asked in 2002 and 2012 was, how happy are you overall? There were some other questions about happiness. They're all very highly correlated. So we use this question about how happy are you overall? And when you control for everything we can think of controlling for, both at the individual level, um, so how old are you, how much education do you have, where do you live, uh, etc., and then control for things at the country level, so um, the GDP that year, economic freedom index, gender inequality index. When we control for all of those things, what we find is that the effect of being raised by an employed mom is nothing. It doesn't make you happier. It doesn't make you less happy. It's a whopping nothing. So just like your sort of intuition was telling you, whether your mom is employed outside the home or not isn't like the secret to life. It doesn't necessarily make their kids happier. What it does is it provides a role model that communicates certain things as valuable. So what having your mom work outside the home conveys to girls, to daughters, is that that's a normal thing for women to do. And so it's in, in many ways, not that surprising, although people have been surprised by the effects, it's not that surprising that people who are women who are raised by moms who left for work every day are more likely to see leaving for work every day themselves as something that's normal and desirable and doable. Yes. Right? Their moms did it. They can do it. Um, so, so it's not that it's better. It's that it's role modeling um, a certain openness to an expanded role for what women can do. And, and the same, you can think about the effect on sons the same way. So, it, so being raised by a mom who's employed doesn't have any effect on men's employment because men have always thought it was okay and normal and um, desirable to go to work. Um, but what they do see is that people who live inside a home with an employed mom are expected to help. And so men who are raised by moms who are employed spend more hours um, caring for family members. Now, the question is about caring for family members, not children per se. So that could also include, for example, caring for parents or caring for other people in the family. But it's most likely primarily caring for children. So again, it's not about a working mom or an employed mom, because certainly moms who stay home are working. Um, it's not about employed moms being better in the sense of um, creating happier children. What it's about is employed moms having um, the potential to reduce inequalities in terms of women in the workplace because women think being in the workplace is normal, 
and to reduce inequalities in terms of contributions to the home because guys raised by working moms think that guys have to help out too. That that last part you said describes it so succinctly. I mean, you almost took what was going to be my next question out of my mouth, which was when I look at the summary of the findings that, you know, adult daughters of mothers who worked outside the home are more likely to be employed, are more likely to hold supervisory uh, responsibilities, earn higher income. In my head, I'm going, they're just following their mom's lead. I mean, essentially, it's just, what did mom do? Okay, I'll do the same thing. And so that does seem relatively uh, unsurprising. However, I never thought about the fact that the more this behavior is modeled, then the better represented women will be in the workplace and really how that uh, shift will impact future generations and our economy going forward. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's not that the ideal is to have all women working. The ideal is to have all women and all men, and this is a, you know, this is a admittedly idyllic world, is to have all women and all men be able to choose what they want to do in terms of their involvement in the workplace, in terms of their involvement at home, and not have that driven by these really strict mores of, you know, this is what women do and this is what men do. Yeah, and it's really funny to think about, for example, when I look at one of my best friends, his both his parents worked full-time uh, in D.C. They, they commuted an hour every day each way. And my parents did it like almost completely opposite. My mom didn't work, at least after I was born. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, and so he was gone for long stretches and home for long stretches. And then as we grew up, I'm thinking, no way I'm going to a nine-to-five job. And I, I, I don't do it. I, I won't go to work every single day, get in a car, while my friend, he does. And that's just normal. And it took that for me to realize man, like my disdain for being in a cube all day, every day probably comes from the fact that I saw some of the freedom that my dad had. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's not at all um, surprising. And in fact, there's research that shows this. It's not all surprising, for example, that I'm a professor. My dad was a professor. It's not <laughs> right. surprising that you have a career that allows you a lot of um, flexibility in what you do, because that was something that you were used to with your father, at least when he was home. So so I think it's, it, it is not very surprising when you put it that way. And yet we have this discussion going about how moms who are employed hurt their kids. And there's just no evidence to support it. So especially one of the questions that's come up quite a bit is, well, is this just about rich moms? And it's not at all. So the women who choose to stay home, that's great. The women who choose to um, be employed, that's great. Uh, but those should be choices that they make because that's what they either need to for their family or they want to do, not just because they think, you know, that's the only thing I can do. You know, I think a lot of the reason people have this idea that working moms might do some kind of harm to children is that it seems almost natural, right? The, the mother is the caretaker. They are feeding them most likely at least for the first couple of months, perhaps the first year. And then when you look back to maybe uh, over evolution, you think, yeah, well, the, the mom kind of was the, you know, the one there. And then the, the men were out kind of hunting and all that. So when a mom drops a child off to be raised by someone else, it can seem almost like, wow, I can't believe 
you would do that. And and it's not a, a huge surprise. It's very commonplace and I'll probably or we will do it. But then as I think about that, it's like, well, back in the days of tribes, we had a number of people raising children all together in these communities. So is that kind of the stigma you think is like, how can a mom leave the raising of her child up to someone else while she goes to work? That's that's certainly the stigma. But as you're alluding to, there's only a very, very short time in the history of society where men tromped off to work and women stayed home in these isolated houses without anyone else around raising their children. That's a that's a sort of post-World War II existence that just didn't last very long. So so this what we have in terms of this belief about the way families should be is based on a very, very short time span where there were separate spheres for men and for women. If you go back past that, so whether you're thinking about um, agricultural families or families that lived were were sort of more hunters and gatherers, if you think about it um, historically, those were places where lots of people lived together. And women weren't taking care of their children individually. Like somebody was taking care of the kids and somebody was taking care of the vegetables and somebody was taking care of the cooking. And and that kind of um, living together in many ways is much better simulated in a large childcare setting than it is simulated in the home. I mean, so so I have one daughter. I'm one of five kids, so there were lots of us around. Um, but I have one daughter and the idea that I was going to stay home with her, just the two of us, like what kind of stimulation <laughs> am I going to be able to provide this little person 24 hours a day when she can be in an environment where there are other kids and, and other adults and, in fact, adults who actually study and know how to stimulate and really take care of little kids. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, you know, that's not something that I was born being good at, right? So this, this belief that somehow mothers just innately are fantastic at helping their kids learn and having them be stimulated, some moms are good at it and some moms aren't. Hmm. Some moms have fun at it and some moms don't. And some dads are good at it and some aunts are good at it and some grandmothers are good at it and some grandpas are good at it. So some people are better at some things than at others. So the idea that somehow the mother is the only person that can provide a healthy environment for your kid, of course you want mothers to be involved. You want dads to be involved too. right? The From my perspective, the ideal way to raise a kid is in a big family with lots of different people around. Um, but that's not the world most of us live in anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have loved to raise my daughter with my siblings and their kids, with my parents around, and with everybody having a role. But they live on the West Coast, and I lived on the East Coast. And so that that way of raising children, which really was the way that society has raised children for you know millennium isn't available to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really an enlightening topic and the research you're doing and, and this study that you guys just published. I mean, it's fantastic. I hope it kind of changes the paradigm or at least the discussion on how we view gender roles in the workplace and how that correlates to who's raising kids. And, uh, and I just really you know enjoyed learning about this. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. I want to give you this opportunity to, um, you know, send our listeners who are interested 
anywhere. I know you have the gender initiative. Perhaps you could tell them where they can learn more about that. Um, you know, we will obviously post links to, I know you've written an article on what we've discussed and some other things. We'll post that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. But is there anywhere where our guests, or I mean, our listeners can find you and find more of what you're doing? Yep. So what, a great place for them to go would be to the HBS Gender Initiative site. So if you go into hbs.edu, actually, if you just type in HBS Gender Initiative, you'll get a whole bunch of research about gender at work, including my work. The other, the other site that I think would be great for your listeners, the Harvard Kennedy School has a program that's called the Women and Public Policy Program, WAPPP. And so you can also send them to the um, website for WAPP, W-A-P-P-P, and they have um, an even broader set of scholars who are studying these issues and studying them at a more international level than most of the work at um, HBS Gender Initiative. Oh, great. Okay, we will definitely include that one as well. And we'll send out a newsletter with links to, to all these. All right. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was fun talking with you. Thank you, Kathleen. You as well. Have a great day. You too. Good luck with your baby. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode with Kathleen McGinn. I'm going to keep this week's outro short. I've had a long day today. Started off with a volunteer session for a web development program. And now we have a delicious smelling chicken pot pie cooking in the oven. Can't wait for that. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode of Smart People Podcast, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. It seems like such a small thing, but it actually does help support the show. So thank you in advance if you head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review this week. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can find us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod, or you can shoot us an email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for checking us out. We've got some great episodes coming up, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you again to Aspiration for sponsoring this podcast. Check them out and sign up at aspiration.com slash smart people. Aspiration's motto is do well and do good. Again, that's aspiration.com slash smart people. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objectives, generate profits, or avoid losses. Investing involves risks of loss and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. Before investing, consider your investment objectives.